0: This is Hemant Mehta. If you like what you're listening to, please consider making a donation at patreon.com slash friendlyatheistpodcast. If you've followed the articles, movies, and TV shows about the Church of Scientology recently, you're probably familiar with the name David Miscavige, the man who runs the church. His father is Ron Miscavige, and Ron joined the church in 1970. David was only 10 at the time. It wasn't until 2012 that Ron escaped. Since then, he's worked hard to undo some of the damage caused by the church, including their policy of basically shunning those outside of it. His book, now out in paperback, is called Ruthless, Scientology, My Son David Miscavige, and Me. And if you're interested in knowing more about Ron and seeing him on tour as he speaks about the book, please check out therealronmiscavige.com. We will have a link to that site in the show notes. Let me start out, Ron, by asking you, uh, for people who are not familiar with your story other other than the biggest of broad strokes, what drew you to the Church of Scientology in the first place? Because this was back in 1970, right?
1: Yes, it is. Now... Let me give you a little backdrop to my story, and then we can go back in time. I escaped from the Church of Scientology on March 25th, 2012. About a year and a half later, there was a private investigator looking to buy a house around the corner from mine. And he was looking in the windows and kind of, you could say he was casing the joint. A neighbor saw him, called the cops, and said, listen, there's a guy out here. It could be a drug dealer. I don't know what, what he's doing here. So the West Dallas police came down to see him. Uh, Nick Pye was a guy. And he started questioning him. And the guy started giving him some snappy answers like, am I breaking any law? I mean, blah, 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 and giving him some lips. So finally Nick said, hey, you're under arrest, man. Can I look at your car? He said, the guy said, yes. In the trunk of the car that the guy was driving, it was a van, It was the windows were blacked out, Nick found five license plates from five different states, five handguns, a stun gun, two rifles, one fitted up with a silencer, and over 2,000 rounds of ammunition. That is the backdrop to the story and That is one of the reasons that I wrote this book about Scientology, which is called Scientology, excuse me, Ruthless Scientology, My Son, David Miscavige and Me. And uh, that incident kind of kicked things off. But even with that going, I still wasn't going to write a book. But what happened, Hammond, is they had my daughters disconnect from me, and I'm sure you know that this is one of the policies. If you stand up and are critical of them or you do anything that is untoward toward their operation, they will declare you what's called a suppressive person and your friends, your family will disconnect from you. They got my daughters to disconnect from me. So I no longer have my daughters, nor my grandchildren, nor my great-grandchildren. And with those two daughters, I've never met any of the great-grandchildren. Excuse me, I met one. I went down to Florida, to where they live, to present a recording of these guys being interrogated because I'm sure my daughters didn't hear this. And when they were being interrogated, uh, there were two of them, there was Dwayne Powell and his son Daniel Powell. That was the name of the two uh, private investigators who were following me. And if anybody cares to hear the interrogation and hear what I'm talking about they can go on to Tony Ortega's site on the internet and look this up and you can listen to what they're saying. And what happened during that interrogation is this. One day they were following me and I was in Janesville, Wisconsin, shopping for food. It was the summertime and I had a pocket t-shirt on and I was bringing the groceries out to the car and I had my cell phone in my left-hand shirt pocket. I went to put some groceries in the car bent over to put them in, and I thought my cell phone was going to fall out of my shirt. So I grabbed my left chest with my right hand so the cell phone wouldn't fall on the ground. They thought I was having a heart attack because they were looking at me from their blacked-out van. They called in to their contact. His name was Greg and described what was happening, and he said, hang on a second. So a couple minutes later, a person got on the phone, identified himself as David Miscavige, And said to the PIs, listen, if it's his time to die, let him die. Don't do anything. Don't intervene. And that was my son, David. I had that recording on a CD and I wanted to play this for my daughters because if you're in the church, you're not allowed to listen to anything that's counter to anything the church is doing. Like you're not allowed to look on the Internet, on the Tony Ortega site or maybe Mike Rinder's blog. Uh, If you do, you'll be taken in for interrogation and find out why you're doing that and kind of quote straightened out. So I drove down and within about 30 miles of Clearwater where I was going, I had three PIs following me, went to my one daughter's house. Lori, she wasn't in. I went to my daughter Denise's house, knocked on the door. Her husband came to the door and I said, Jerry, listen, I'd like to talk to Denise. And he says, well, you can't run. She's not home but in order to handle this, you're going to have to handle this with the church. I said, Jerry, this is not going to result in anything happening. I got to speak to Denise and sort it out with her. I wonder why she's not talking to me. Anyway, we went back and forth for about 20 minutes. And um, at the end of 20 minutes, I finally said to him, Jerry, what does this mean? He said, Ron, Denise and I are through with you and Becky forever. It was at that moment, Emmett, that I decided I was going to write a book. I decided that because I know that there are tens if not hundreds of other people who have been forced to connect, disconnect from the children, their father, their mother, their brothers or sisters, friends, and I knew that I would be able to get some good publicity on a book and I could expose them. That was the moment I decided to write this book, and as I say, the name of the book is Ruthless, Scientology, my son, David Miscavige, and me.
0: So, so there's take, a me, take me back to why are they coming after you like this? Because you said they're already disconnected from you, So, and you weren't writing a book at the time. So what's the point of coming after you as if you're stealing church secrets? Or are they worried that you were going to write a book and tell people about what's inside the church?
1: Well, you said it. I mean, I could add something to that, but you just summarized it. No, I was not going to write a book. All I wanted to do was get on with my life. I couldn't live the life that I was living, which I was living on a compound in Hemet, California. And uh, I lived on that compound. There's a fence around it, barbed wire pointing out and also barbed wire pointing in. Uh, If you wanted to write a letter, you had to put it in an unsealed envelope, security guard's would read the letter and see what it said and if there was anything in there that wasn't to their liking, they'd send it back to you. You had to correct it. If it was okay, then they'd put in the envelope, seal it and send it out. If I wanted to call somebody on a telephone, I had to go through a switchboard and there would be another person listening on the end of that uh, uh, telephone to hear what I was saying. Listen, when my brother died and my nephew Gerard called me to tell me he died. Crystal Simmons was on the other end listening to this phone call. You couldn't drive off the base to go to a store to buy some amenities like, you know, some shaving cream or some underwear or socks. You had to stay on the base and buy it at the store they had on the base or buy it on the internet. That was the life I was living. It was wake up in the morning, go to breakfast at nine o'clock. At nine thirty, had a muster. Do you know what a muster is? Where everybody gathers and they account for everybody. And then in the morning, you may have some study time where you'd study how to do your job better. At noon, you went to lunch. 12.30, there was another muster. You went to work. 5 o'clock, uh, you went to dinner. 5.30, there was another muster. And then you worked till the end of the night. And sometimes at the end of the night, maybe 10.30 or 11 o'clock, there may be another muster. It was a totally regimented gray life. And it just it got that way. It wasn't that way when I went in.
0: When you went in, did you think they were... I mean, Whoa. what's the difference between Scientology in 1970, what you knew of it, and what drew you to that church, and what they're doing now?
1: Hammond, hey, I mean, the difference in that church would be like the difference between Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. But... I'm
0: familiar with that one. Okay, and Two I'm very sure. different ple- uh, places we're talking about now. You
1: got it. And when I went in, in 1970... I mean, it was like for the free spirit, you'd go in. uh, Well, first of all, the bottom of the bridge. Let me back up another step. What you do in Scientology is called the bridge to total freedom. And it's little incremental steps where you would gain abilities to make yourself more able in life. And uh, when I got in in 1970, uh, you could go in and do some of these beginning courses as an example, in uh, communication, and you'd learn the exact communication formula, the precise little points of it, and you could drill this, go out in life and enjoy a more productive life and be more effective in handling life, or maybe on handling interpersonal relationships, there was courses on that, or running a business, or just running your life, and these were good little courses, I, I will tell you, it was just it is the hook though that you that gets you started when i say it's the hook here's what i mean by that and it starts off this way you learn a more precise effective way to communicate with people now you see that this works and cuz you've used it you use it in life and you say well this is good this is something i can agree with once that agreement is set up once you know that that's good and it works and you have complete certainty that's a first the first agreement or what i would call is the hook maybe the next thing you would learn would be that affinity reality and communication equal understanding in other words if you find something that you can agree with with another person through communication your reality is enhanced. Maybe you're both uh, fans of the Chicago Bears. Okay, well, there you have a a common reality there. And you begin to like that person a little bit better. So through communication, you'd find some point of agreement, which is reality, and this enhances your understanding. And you could see that this works. Salesmen do this all the time. They try to find out something uh, that that their client or the person they're trying to sell to will agree with. And they... They use this triangle either knowingly or unknowingly. These are points that actually work. So you start then getting confidence that what you're being told is true. Now, the further on you get into it, somewhere along the way, you're going to find something that you think, wow, is this true? I don't know about it. But then you think to yourself, well, listen, everything they've told me so far has been correct. I'll just accept it. And you're on your way.
0: Now, it sounds very much, though, like if I were exposed to Scientology today and I didn't uh, know about all the baggage that comes with it, I would probably, you know, be somewhere where they're doing e-meter readings and, you know, gauging my personality or something. It sounds pretty similar to what you're saying drew you to the church. So I'm wondering when you entered in 1970, did you realize, was any of the quote unquote evil stuff happening behind the scenes or did that develop much later when kind of David took over?
1: Okay. Uh, That's a pretty broad stroke and I'll try to explain it this way. I think into the dna of scientology were certain things that would then show up later they'd they'd flower later on it's like look at you take a little puppy maybe or a a cub let's say a, a lion cub just very nice you know you can hug it and everything and that's a lion cub but built into that da- dna is that that animal is a predator. They'll go out and capture a wild beast, you know, choke to death, eat it, and don't think twice. So in Scientology, there were policies that were laid down in the early days to, as an example, handle people, well, like me, as an example, or somebody who talked out against it. And one of the policies, and I can send you soft copies of these if you'd like to see them, one of them would be If somebody attacks you, you always attack back. Find or manufacture data on somebody that's discreditable. In other words, they go in for character assassination. Um, There's a policy called fair game. Are you familiar with that at all?
0: Um, I'm not sure what you're referring to here. Fair game would
1: be if somebody is considered to be an enemy of Scientology, they can be tricked, lied to, or destroyed and w- without any repercussions to the person doing it. That's an actual policy that L. Ron Hubbard wrote. So there's many of these policies like that that were written back in those days. But in those days, there was a, a huge demand for Scientology because there was no such thing as an Internet. You didn't know of any of the other things that went on in the background. Like, as an example, L. Ron Hubbard was portrayed as a guy who was a war hero, a war hero, He wasn't a hero. They said he had purple hearts. He never received a purple heart. There was no such thing as the Internet in those days. So you couldn't research this for yourself. Do you see what I'm saying?
0: Sure. So, I mean, I can understand people are shrouded in secrecy. They didn't realize, you know, all the lies that may have been included. Uh, Right. They were introduced to the church, but they didn't realize how deep this rabbit hole went. Um, How did you manage to break out of the bubble then, even though it was relatively recently how did you manage to break free and realize there's something messed up here when so many people are still Scientologists and don't realize the situation? I'll I'll tell you, but did I cover
1: the point about how you, when you first got in in 1970, it was, you know, it was pretty nice. I mean, like I went, I took my whole family to St. Hill, England to study and we were over there twice, both times for about a year and three months. And it, You would go on course, you'd you'd learn things about life, and it was great. They didn't have, as an example, the fundraising they have now. They didn't have the International Association of Scientologists, where people are dunned into paying money for status, not for product. I mean, as an example, you can become a patron for $50,000, and people are pressured into doing this, or they're not considered good Scientologists or they're pressured into donating money for buildings and they're expanding their real estate holdings. Yet, you go into these buildings and they're not people there, they're filled with air. There's a building in Philadelphia on Chestnut Street. They bought about seven or eight years ago. It's 11 stories. The local people all gave money to buy this thing. It's empty, it's boarded up, and nothing's happening these are the things that weren't going on in the early 70s. Do you see the difference there?
0: Sure. I mean, it wasn't as well established then as it is now. So even if L. Ron Hubbard may have had some of the underpinnings of these ideas that would blossom later on, they didn't really have the tools to make it happen.
1: Yeah, but I mean, look, at a business or a religion or anything is going to succeed to the point that its product or what they're delivering is successful and there's a demand for it i mean look at apple i mean or starbuck people want that product that's why they're successful now you go on the internet these days and you find out that, that scientology does well i, I tell you you're, you're not going to say i'm going to get i'm going to get involved in this do you see what
0: i'm saying Sure. So how did you discover that this was something you needed to get out of? Because, like you're saying, the people who are in the church don't have the ability to read this stuff or watch the shows or, you know, watch the documentaries about Scientology now.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Now, how I did it
1: is absolutely a bit on the unique side. As a matter of fact, you're only the second person who's interviewed me that I've told this to. Um, And here's what happened. One year, and by the way, I became dissatisfied with the way things were going many years before we ever decided to leave. Probably in the 90s, there were incidents that happened that I I just couldn't believe that they were happening. And I would say to my wife, listen, Becky, this is is going in a bad direction. We got to get out of here while we have a chance. And she is a perennial optimist. She will go in a room and see a light where there is none. I mean, and she would always say, listen, Ron, it can't get any worse. It's going to get better. So that kind of cooled me down. And then there, there was things, projects that I got involved in that were very nice. I mean, maybe we did an album and it come out and it was successful. So you feel you're doing something worthwhile and maybe you're f- helping to forward the progress of what Scientology is trying to do. And what they're trying, what they tell people they're doing is that by getting this technology that L. Ron Hubbard discovered out to all the people on the planet, it's going to make it a better place to live. There'll be no criminals, no wars. It's going to be a a much more pleasant place to live life. That's what they say. Now, as I said, many years before we left, and we left in 2012, I decided there's something wrong here. I can't pin it down, and I don't know why it's going in this direction, but I don't like it. Well, one year about 3 years before we got out, my son David gave me a Kindle. And I'm sure you're familiar with the Kindle, and most people are, right? I am. Okay. But this was not the new Kindle that is out these days where it's a tu- you touch the screen for changing it. It was a mechanical thing where there was a button on it that if you pressed it, you could press it to the right to the left, up, down, or in. And that's how you selected something or searched for a the uh, meaning of a word or whatever. But anyway, I got this Kindle, and the security guards were trying to get me to give it up. And I said, What the hell would you guys? I mean, this is a present. I'm not going to give you this. Well, you should. And it did go into these arguments with me. But the thing is, David gave me this thing, and David. Is basically the head of Scientology, so they're not going to press the point. But they were tr- trying to get it away from me, and I couldn't figure out why, because what I would do is just I would buy books, and also David had put on there uh, all of the f- fiction writing of L. Ron Hubbard, so I enjoyed those. Anyway, one day uh, I'm looking up a word, and you go to the dictionary, select the word. And on that little mechanical button that would go to the right or left, up, down, or in, if you pressed it to the right, it would say, search dictionary. Do you follow me? Okay. I pressed it a little too hard, and it went past search dictionary to search Google. Mm. and And I was on the internet with no filter. Look at that. So you talk about... Uh, a moment in time I thought, wait a minute because you know y- you could go on the internet on that base but there were filters the only thing you could do there is shop for things that you needed like you could go on to Amazon but if you looked up the name Miscavige or Scientology L. Ron Hubbard you were blocked from seeing anything about it well here we go so now I started looking at various things I looked up L. Ron Hubbard's war record
0: Why? Why are you, I mean, I, I don't get how you know what to look up here. Like, what makes you think, oh, I have access to the internet, I should look up my own religion, or I should look up Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard?
1: Look, when you're living, as I described it, no communication, unmonitored with the outside world, on a compound where you can't leave to go to a store... What do you think? You think that's a normal state of affairs? I didn't. No matter what they would say, I thought, wait a minute. I'm restricted. I'm trapped on this goddamn place. This is not the way I want to live. So, okay, L. Ron Hubbard wasn't the only thing I looked up, but that was one of the things I looked up to see his war record or just happened to show his war record. And I start seeing things about him that the church would say, He did this, and on there I'd come up with a completely opposite point of view. But one other thing that I found is this. There was a girl who was with him when he died. Her name was Annie Tidman. Annie Tidman was a messenger with him on the ship Apollo from a little girl. She grew up basically around him. And when he was at the end of his life living in this ranch in uh, SabiSpo. She was his right-hand man, so to speak, and she was what you would consider a very loyal person to him. Annie Tidman was on the base, and she got lung cancer, and she was sent to L.A. to get treatment, and there was a girl sent down with her as her handler, in other words, to handle anything she would need to take care of her needs, and also auditor. Are you familiar
0: with the term audit? A little bit within the context of Scientology. Okay, well,
1: <clears throat> auditing is another word for someone who would counsel you. Although when you do, when you get auditing in Scientology, it's not like any other counseling you would get. You're not told how to think or told what to think. Uh, it's designed for you to come up with your own awareness of maybe... Uh, how you got yourself in this position. Or in other words, for you to take some responsibility for your position in life, whether it's good or bad. I don't know if that's a good enough explanation, but for right now, this girl would also audit Annie. Now, every time I would say to the medical officer, how is Annie doing? Because she was a bit of a friend of mine, you know, more than a bit of a friend, we were pretty good friends. Martine, that was a medical liaison officer. Say, Martin, how, how's Annie doing? Oh, she's doing great, Ronnie. Yeah, really good, really good. I'm on the Internet. I found out that Annie died six months earlier, and nobody on the base was told this. The pretext that she was still alive and doing well was kept up. And then one day, um, outside of our apartment, we were living on the base, obviously, and there were three girls, and they said, Ronnie, would you like to contribute to a birthday present we're getting for Annie. I said, well, I'm going to pass on it now. But look, they were either part of it and they were keeping the ruse up or even they were in the dark and they were being told that it's Annie's birthday. Let's send her a nice present.
0: So once you realized they were lying about her, you figured they may be lying about a lot of other things too.
1: Exactly. That, that was the crack in the wall. And at that point, I would go on the Internet and found out Find out other things about Scientology, what was happening, and some of the things that happened. As an example, uh, L. Ron Hubbard putting a six-year-old boy in a chain locker overnight, which it just... Do you know what a chain locker is? Uh, no. Okay. On a ship, there's an anchor, which everybody knows, and you do too. And when they pull that chain, when they pull the anchor up, there's a winch that takes it into a locker. And the chain which is fastened to the anchor is stored there. And that's called a chain locker. And I'm telling you when they, when they wind it up or especially when they release it, they'll let the anchor down. I am telling you, it's like the end of the world in there. It is unreal. It's like a house of horrors. He put a little kid in there one time overnight because the kid did something that who knows what a little kid would do. I think he ate a communication or ripped it up and L. Ron Hubbard felt that no matter how old a kid is or how young they are, they're still responsible for their own actions. Stuff like that, I found out, and other things that then really, I said to Becky, hey, listen Beck, this is not the way I want to live my life. We got to get the hell out of here.
0: Did the church ever find your Kindle, or did they ever figure out what you were doing?
1: No. Nope, and it finally dawned on me why they were trying to get it back from me, because up until the point that I accidentally pushed that little button a little too far to the right, I had no idea that I could do that. None at all.
0: Do you think David is in on the game of Scientology, or do you think he's a true believer who's taking his powers to, like, their logical conclusion? You know, or do you think, no, he knows it's a con. He knows what he's doing, and he's... Uh Everyone else may be true believers, but you know a lot of times people say about a cult, you know the person at the top of the food chain totally knows what is going on here. He knows it's a fake
1: oh oh yeah, well, and Scientology is a cult, it is not a religion. you know that, yeah, I mean, look, if you want to state it properly, a friend of mine said this to me, oh some months ago, and it's a great description it's Scientology is a cult disguised as a religion. And operating as a business, hmm. and that is summarizes how they operate these, these days. Now, does he know that it's a con? Well, let me put it this way: When David was a little kid, he and I got along great. He was a snappy little kid. He was very smart, great sense of humor. We had a lot of great times together. I, I just, I, I got to tell you that it's not like. He was a little bastard for where to go. And not at all. We we just enjoyed each other's company. And well, I enjoyed all my kids' company. I very much engaged with them. I taught them all how to swim when they were three years old. They could dive off a, a three-meter board when they were four. Taught them how to cook around the stove, or the boys how to change disc brakes on a car, how to change the oil. I just we we had a lot of fun together. And David was part of that. And he was as I say, just an enjoyable kid to be around. But once he got in Scientology, not once he got in Scientology and the incident where, uh, I took him to see an auditor to handle his asthma was a big day for him. And it was a big day for me. I don't know if you know this or your listeners do, but when he was born, he was cursed with a- asthma and, Man, growing up as a little kid, and even as a baby, it just – he'd have his asthmatic attacks and it was horrible to see a little kid. He could breathe in but you can't breathe out. That's – in his case, that's what his asthma was like. And I did my nut trying to figure out what the hell can I do to help him. One of the things I would do is I'd take him to a doctor in Burlington, New Jersey, Dr. Ziegler, <clears throat> And he'd give him a shot of adrenaline and that would calm it down. But I knew – that giving a little kid shots of a gentleman was not good for him. So I was always trying to figure out what to do. I tried many unusual things, like one of the things I tried, and this, I'll take you back to when I was in the Marine Corps. When I was in the Marine Corps, uh, this is pertinent to this, you'll see why. I had some dental work done, I was stationed in Quantico, Virginia. And the day after I had the dental work done, my face at around 4.30 in the afternoon would go into horrible pain. I mean, it would be so bad I couldn't even like, – I would slobber. It was that bad. So uh, I went to the PX and I bought a bottle of bourbon and uh, i drink a little of this around 4.30 and go to sleep. And after about three days, I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, I'm going to turn into an alcoholic. So I can remember taking a bourbon and pouring it down the toilet, throwing the bottle away. And I decided I would go up to the air station gym and take a workout. So I'm walking up there and I'm in pain all the way up, all the way up. I go in the room and I found a guy, Eddie. I said, you want to lift with me? He said, yeah, let's do it. So we started doing some bench presses. I'm in pain. After the second set, I said, take the bar. The pain completely went away. And I come up with the theory that if you could do that pain in order for pain to exist, it must have your attention to keep it alive. So if you could do something that you would forcibly take your attention off the pain, and if you're doing a bench press, unless you have your attention on it, you could drop the bar on your chest and and kill yourself. So I concluded that if you could do something to get your attention off the pain, It would die. It couldn't exist anymore. And to me, that was a big, big win because the pain went away for good. Now, coming up to David, what I would do sometime is if he started getting an asthmatic attack, I would take him out in the garage and have him start lifting weights. And sometimes we would avert the full asthmatic attack. If it were a little too late and it was coming on, it wouldn't work. So at best, it was somewhat workable. These are the types of things, things I would try to do to get rid of his asthma. There was another time, it was just a little kid. It was winter time in New Jersey. And man, he had this attack and he was turning blue. So I took him upstairs to the bathroom. I took off his clothes, took off my clothes, went in the shower with him, turned the warm water on both of us. And I says, David, I'm here with you. I'm not trying to punish you. And I turned off the hot water And that water come out cold like ice on both of us. And he started (sighs) breathing in and out, took him out, rubbed him down with a Turkish towel, gave him a kiss and he was handled. This is the stuff I used to try to handle his asthma. So finally, I get involved in Scientology. Do you want me to tell you how I did? Because you asked me this when we started the program. Yeah. And I, I continue this. All right. You want, me, you want me to do that now? or sure, to continue sure, on sure, sure. Okay. Because you said, you know, how, how did you get involved or what, what drew you to it? Okay. I have a friend by the name of Nelson Sandy. He's a good friend of mine. He's a singer. And um, we used to do some gigs together. And we also had sales jobs We work together. And one day he said to me, Ron, how would you like to make an extra $100,000 this year? Now, this is the 60s, late 60s. And I said, of course I wouldn't. So he says, okay, I'm getting involved in something called holiday magic and holiday magic, holiday magic was a pyramid marketing scheme. In other words, a multi-level, I'm sure you're familiar with that, right?
0: Yeah.
1: That type of thing like Amway. Yeah. Anyway, I got involved and we're having a meeting at a place in South Jersey called the Mallard Inn and, uh, the only reason I'm bringing it up has some significance because when David and his sister, Denise, were uh, confirmed, excuse me, when they were baptized, we had a little celebration at the same inn, at the Mallard Inn. So anyway, I'm talking to a guy about getting into holiday magic, and I'm with a girl who's working with me, along with Nelson and another guy, and the guy, guy talking to her says, I'm a Scientologist. I heard that word. I stopped talking to the person I was talking to, and I says, wait a minute, what is that? So he started telling me, and I pinned him down for about a half an hour about him telling me what Scientology was, and he got me enough interested that I used to go to a place in South Jersey, in Woodbury, to a guy by the name of Frank Ogle. He had a cafeteria there, and he he ran meetings on, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday of every week, and he would bring up points about Scientology. So I went there for about three or four weeks, and I kind of figured I knew what it was about, so I stopped going. But then David continued to have these attacks, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to see if Frank Ogle can audit him and help him. So one day I went to school. I got David out of school. We went down. We saw Frank Ogle, and I said, Frank, do you think you can help him with his asthma? He says, let's go. He took him in, and he audited him for 45 minutes. David came out smiling. I said, how's it going? He says, dad, I'm handled. And I'm telling you, that 45 minutes handled him where he never had another severe attack as a kid. It didn't cure it, but it staved it off to the point where he never had these full-blown attacks where he'd be gasping for his life. That, to him, was an aha point. I think at that moment, he thought, I want to do this. I want to somehow do this.
0: Let me let me sure. ask you one last question here, yeah. uh, which is, uh, we've seen so many uh, articles, books, documentaries, TV shows in the past few years uh, featuring people like you, people who have left the church, people who had horrible experiences and want to talk about it and expose the church. Do you think, what effect has all that had? Uh, not just from the outside, from, you know, maybe it has a bad reputation or something, But what's happening on the inside of the church? Because people in leadership have to know what's going on. I mean, they do know. They're following people like you. So what's going on uh, within the church? What's the health of it like? Is this stuff having an effect on them and their fundraising and their ability to to do the things they do? Okay. And I haven't forgotten that. and I'm leading up to
1: it. And that's the reason I told you about David having this moment in his life. And then we come to where after we got back from England a second time and he's now trained as an auditor. Okay. He knows how to audit people and he's good at it. One day I come home from work and he's in his room laying in bed and he said, listen, you know, I said, what's up? He says, I don't want to go to school anymore. He says, I want to do Scientology. I help Ron Hubbard long and short of it as I realized, okay, he's going to be 16 years old. He's young. But he's good at what he does and he has a high purpose to do it. Look at I was seventeen when I went in the Marine Corps. And to me, it was one of the best moves I ever made. So I thought, okay, maybe he knows what he wants. I said, David, I'll help you. So he joined the sea organization. Seven months later he was working with L. Ron Hubbard. When L. Ron Hubbard died, he saw an opening and he pushed people out of his way who were in his way, put people in his way, put people in there who would listen to him. And he rose to the top and he then was the head of the church. What led to that? He had a severe asthma attack prior to this. Had to be taken to the hospital, to the emergency room, and when he got out, he said to Paul Grady, that was the guy who took him in, he said, Paul, I had a great realization and that is this. Power is not granted, it is assumed. David assumed the leadership of Scientology and just went hell-bent for leather and rose to the top. Now, getting back to the question earlier, you said, does he know it's a con? Well, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm two minds of this. I have two minds about it, and that is this. You can't not know that this is not going to happen, and this meaning the, the later what they call operating faten levels where you can achieve you as a spiritual being going exterior to your body and be able to see things just as if you were in a body going to Germany and reading a newspaper. This is promised that you'll get out with full perception. I was involved for 42 years. I don't know of one single person who achieved this, okay? Not a single person. If there were three, I'd say, well, okay, maybe it's possible. Not one. Let's put it this way. As far as I'm concerned, I think anything is possible. But that is not, that has never been achieved in Scientology. Now, David has got to know this because he's the head of the church. So now I said I'm in two minds, and that is this. He knows it, but he's keeping it going because he's in a position of power. And I'm going to tell you something. There's a guy by the name of Lord Atkin that said this back in the 1800s. He was a British guy, member of parliament. He said, power has a tendency to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think what has happened to David is he achieved power. And as far as I'm concerned, it's like a drug. You don't want to give it up. You can't give it up. You get somebody who's on heroin or cocaine, man, I'll tell you, try to get them to give it up. Good luck. So he has this power. And he's keeping it going. And then the other thing, which I've never told anybody, and that is this. He knows that it doesn't work, but he keeps on searching through maybe all kinds of writings that L. Ron Hubbard has done to possibly come up with a way that it can be done. And that's that's like looking for a needle in a haystack, and the needle doesn't exist.
0: <laughs>
1: Do you follow me? I follow you. So that's the two points he knows it, and he's just keeping the ruse up because he wants to keep that power. And on the other hand, he knows it but thinks there may be some way, as an example, he has people doing the entire bridge from the beginning to the end, and these people have attained the highest level. It would be like this, like a, a medical doctor, the, the guy's a medical doctor, You know, four years of college, four years of medical school, an internship or a residency. Now, having go back to first, first grade, and learn simple math. And this is what people are being asked to do, to do the entire bridge over. So I don't know if I explained that, but that's my take on it right now, Hammond.
0: Well, I appreciate your explaining it. I appreciate your time. And to any listeners who want to know kind of the full story of all this, again, Ron Miscavige's book is called Ruthless Scientology, My Son David Miscavige and Me. Thank you again.
1: Okay, thank you, Emmett. Thanks for having me on.